before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. This uh, little section is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because it has so much to tell us about who Jesus is. The message of Christianity is a message concerning uh, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who took flesh and without ceasing to be God, offered himself up as a ransom for sinners. And so these verses that speak about the the person of Christ are at the heart of Christianity. This is an essential gospel. Uh, This is where the battle wages most fiercely uh, in defending the Bible because uh, the consequences of giving up the truth about Jesus contained here are most serious. So there is really important theology here. But when we come to these verses, we're also not just coming to theology, we're coming to worship. Uh, Our hearts are uh, inspired, uh, enlarged, as we are reminded of how great the Lord Jesus Christ is. Uh, This is true worship, to meditate upon Jesus. And to have higher thoughts of him. To adore him. So let's ask God the Holy Spirit as we, as we do meditate upon his word tonight. Uh, to give us a worshipful spirit. That we wouldn't be simply in the business of accumulating facts in our heads tonight. But that our hearts also would be uh, in, on fire. That we would really worship as we Hear of the greatness, of the supremacy of Jesus. It's also a very practical section. You see, whether we we believe that Jesus is supreme and sufficient is very, very important in our lives. Some people do not believe that Jesus is supreme. Uh, The atheist does not believe that Jesus is supreme. Uh, He may be willing to say that Jesus is a very important historical figure. uh, That he's a good example or so on. But they would never use the language that is used here of Jesus. That he is head over all. That uh, he is above everything else. That he is the the true king. They would never use the language of supremacy uh, in speaking about Jesus. But there are uh, those of us who would speak of Jesus in these terms and who do believe that Jesus is supreme. But when it comes down to it, we don't really believe that he's sufficient because we look to other things to supplement Jesus when we're up against it in different ways. Paul's speaking precisely to that condition uh, in Colossae in his day and consequently to that kind of condition in our day. To anyone who thinks that they need 
to add to all that they have in Jesus. He is saying Jesus is enough. To those in Colossae who said it's good to trust in Jesus for your salvation. But you need to avoid certain foods. And you need to uh, be involved in this uh, inner, uh, very, very spiritual worship of angels. That will make you uh, really spiritual. That will give you fullness of life. Paul saying Jesus is enough because he's supreme. And to people today, 21st century Christians, burdened by cares and anxieties, facing problems of different kinds, and who are tempted perhaps to supplement Jesus with the horoscope or to look to alcohol for Dutch courage for facing our problems or uh, things like a, a lifestyle coach or some special spiritual experience. The word tells us tonight that Jesus, because he is supreme, is enough. We don't need to add to what we have in Jesus. Jesus is supreme. He's supreme, Paul tells us, in creation. He's supreme in the church. And he is supreme in salvation. Just before we look at the, the text itself, a little word about the form of this passage. Uh, a lot of debate as to the origin of these verses. A lot of the commentators believe that uh, this is probably an ancient hymn. Or if not a hymn, a part of the ancient liturgy of the church. Uh, for example, William Hendrickson writes, uh, If it was not a literary gem composed by the apostle himself, it was probably a hymn or other fixed testimony of the early church adopted by Paul and reproduced here either without change or with alterations suitable to the needs of the Colossian church. Now, if you were to look at the, at the, the passage uh, you would need to divide it in two and see how it deals, first of all, with uh, Jesus supreme over creation and then Jesus supreme in salvation. Divide it in that way. And there's a parallel structure. And you have the same phrases repeated in either half of the hymn, uh, giving it a, a form. Uh, for example, you have a repetition of the expressions, who is Repetition of the firstborn, uh, for in him and in the heavens and the earth. There, there's a careful parallel, not just of, of words, but also of ideas. So this is a, a special uh, little section. Now, if in fact it was a hymn, think on this. Maybe 20 years after the Lord Jesus Christ died in shame, an apparent failure on a cross outside Jerusalem. His followers are singing praise to him. Which attributes to him all the fullness of divinity. That's not an invention of Paul. This was the truth which impressed itself upon the acceptance of the people of God, and which Paul rejoiced in. Well, Jesus is supreme, and he is supreme, first of all, we're told, in creation. And he is supreme in creation because he is the creator. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Genesis uh, speaks about man being the image of God. Let us make man in our image. Uh, In other words, when man was made, man reflected truly what God is like. Man, of course, is not God. Jesus reflects God because he is God. He is God. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Paul will say in in verse 9 of chapter 2. Jesus reveals God because he is God. God in material uh, form. He is not something less than God. He's not the highest of created beings. He's not just a great man, not a great philosopher or teacher. He is very God. He is a visible manifestation of deity. We cannot see God because God is spirit, but Christ has made him known. Christ has shown us God. Jesus could say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You look to Jesus and he reveals God. Uh, A former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Michael Ramsey, uh, once said famously, uh, God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. That's wonderful, isn't it? There will be no nasty surprise that you are ever going to discover in God. It is not the case that Jesus is loving and forgiving, but God is stern and unyielding. It's not the case that Jesus can be trusted, but God is always some nasty surprise to thrust upon you. Jesus has revealed God perfectly. Now that explodes some of the the kind of uh, uh, discussions that that people have in a kind of disinterested way about God. Which usually ends up with a God who's uh, distant and uncaring. God who's out there. God of the philosophers. God is revealed in Christ. He is the image of God, the only one who reveals to human sight what God is truly like. And he turns on their heads all of our preconceptions of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, that does not mean that Paul is saying that that Jesus is... The, the most eminent part of creation. Firstborn here uh, doesn't mean that, the, that there was a time when uh, there was no son of God. That was an ancient heresy in the church. There was a, a guy called uh, Arius and his slogan was there, there was a time when he was not. That there was a time when the, the, 
the Son of God came into being. He's simply the, the greatest. He's the, the, the top one in all creation. Paul's not saying that here. He's using the, the expression firstborn to speak of the dignity of Jesus. The firstborn, traditionally, is the one who has the inheritance. Apologies to all second and thirdborns here. That was the way it was in society. And so it's a tradition, it's an ascription of honour. He's greater than all creation. And he's greater than all creation because he brought creation into being. Verse 16, we'll go on to say, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Jesus, who became flesh, cradled in the manger. Think of this. is the God who made the wood of the manger, who brought a newborn star into being. Luther said that while baby Jesus was being nursed at his mother's breast, he was upholding whole of the universe. Now you can go to other parts of the Bible and it, it, uh, it's very often uh, it seems that it's God the Father who is uh, attributed with the work of creation. And uh, Paul is saying here, for by him all things were created. And what that's doing here is it's simply stressing the, the, the unity of the Trinity. The Son is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit and was joined with them in all of his works. The Trinity is at one in all its works outside itself. And so the Son is involved in the work of creation. But there's a sense in which uh, the, the Son, that Jesus is the focal point of creation, which is a wonderful thought. For by him and for him all things were made. Paul will say to the Philippians that there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And therefore the universe has been made for the honour of Jesus. Everything is moving towards the, 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 the pinnacle of the absolute adoration by the whole of the cosmos of Jesus Christ the Redeemer the worlds were made for him now the fact that Jesus the son of God is involved in this way in the creation uh, should help to guard us against Two kinds of errors. They're two very different kinds of errors. And the first one is, is an obvious one. It's, the, it's the, the error of a false materialism. You know, when, whenever there, there's any discussion on the TV or in books about origins, the beginning of the universe, and there are umpteen books uh, in the shops these days about uh, cosmology and origins and so on. But if you read them, or if you listen, you're in a very, very different atmosphere, aren't you? You're in the atmosphere of big bangs, and multiverse, and all kinds of things, and mathematical equations, and so on. And we're reminded that the universe 
was created by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian doctrine of creation brings Jesus right into the heart of origins. And so when we look up into the skies and see the stars, uh, we are being reminded of Jesus by and for whom the worlds were made. And we see the skies uh, with his signature upon them. They are for Jesus. They are declaring his worth. And so we look up into the heavens and we see not their uh, equations and distances. But we see the great plan of God. It guards us against false materialism. It guards us against false spirituality. Uh, down through history there have always been people uh, who have wanted to make a big distinction between uh, what's physical and what's spiritual. And that would be the case in the first century as well. There would be a, a, a kind of thought there that really material things were somehow less worthy. That would be what would be driving the, the impulse to forbid certain foods in Colossae. But we're reminded here that all things were created by and for Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And we can use created things for bad purposes, but that doesn't make them bad in themselves. When God created the heavens and the earth, he pronounced them good. So it warns us against a, a false hyper-spirituality that looks down on the physical or created things. But Jesus not only uh, created the world, the, the sun was not only involved in creation. He keeps it going. He keeps it going. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the, the organizing principle of the world. He's the regulator of the world. He's the great traffic controller that is supervising the movement of the stars, the, the, the planets. Sometimes it feels as though the world is spinning headlong into disarray. You get news items like the, the ones that we mentioned in prayer. Uh, bombings at uh, athletic events like the Boston Marathon. The collapse of buildings with hundreds killed. Is the world spinning out of control? No, the word assured is Jesus is in control. Uh, when William Hendrickson was uh, writing the commentary that I, I quoted from earlier, he was writing at the height of the Cold War, and he's got quite a, a telling uh, line at one point about how the upholding of the universe by Jesus keeps his people sane in the midst of perplexing times. He writes this, Since the Christ of Calvary rules the heavens and the earth, in the interest of his kingdom and to the glory of his name, always overruling evil for good. Neither automation, nor bomb, nor communistic menace, nor depression, nor economic unbalance, nor fatal accident, nor gradual decline in mental vigor, nor hallucination due to nervous disorder, nor any invader from outer space, about which some people have nightmares, will ever succeed 
in separating us from his love. These are characteristically 60s fears, are they not? The communist threat, the bomb, and so on. Whatever our dread is in the world today, we can believe that we worship a God who holds the whole world in his hands. He's supreme in creation. Secondly, he's supreme over the church. And he is, Christ is, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have supremacy. Why is Jesus supreme over the church? He's supreme because uh, he is uh, the head of the church. He's supreme because he's the firstborn from the dead. Take the second one first. Jesus is the first of all who will rise to eternal life. The church is made up of those who have been brought into eternal life. Jesus is the first. He has primacy because he is the first to rise to newness of life. He is our great pioneer. He will ensure that we too will rise to eternal life. He is like the lead climber on the Alpine expedition. And we are roped up behind our great pioneer. And he has reached the summit. And his, his ice axe is embedded there at the top. And we are free from fear of falling because we are connected to him. He has gone before us. And he is preeminent because he's the head of the body, which is the church. In human terms, the, the head, in, in many ways, is the, the governing uh, part of the body. Uh, it's, from, it's the part from which growth comes. Uh, you have the, pitu the pituitary gland in the, in the, in the head, which uh, sends out the growth hormone. It causes growth. And Christ is the cause of growth in his church. Uh, if we are to grow spiritually, we must be connected to Jesus. If the church is to grow, then it must proclaim Jesus. And Jesus must be truly at the head. And the head also directs us. Uh, it receives outside impulses. And the brain uh, directs the movement of our limbs, our legs, our arms, and so on. And Jesus has that primacy. He directs the church. He has a rule over the church. And he rules the church with his word. Now that's hugely liberating. Uh, if we submit to that fact that Jesus is supreme over the church. And that he rules the church by his word. We don't need any other ruler. If Jesus is supreme, he's also sufficient for the church. Therefore, obviously, we do not need a pope. We do not need someone who is given headship, uh, someone to whom uh, there is obeisance given, someone who is regarded as the interpreter on behalf of the rest. We don't need that. But also, we're freed from the kind of powerful personalities that can sometimes lord it over congregations or denominations. No one has a right to lord it over the church of Christ Jesus alone is supremely head over his church. And his good pleasure is found only in his word. There have been times in the church when you, you had rising up what were called uh, heavy shepherding movements. 
and you find that in, in uh, some sect-like branches of the church. And if you, if you join, if you become a member, then you're signing up to people directing the minutia of your life. And they'll tell you what kind of job you've got to go into. They'll direct you to the person that you have to marry. Uh, and you're, you're throwing away your Christian liberty in these situations. And it's anti-biblical because Jesus is the only head of the church. We need no other rule than the rule of his word. And true leadership in the church is simply applying the Bible. The Bible that Christ has given as his rule. Jesus is supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. He's supreme in salvation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. <laughs> this is, again, it's so breathtaking, isn't it? That the expansiveness of it all, whether things on, uh, on earth or things in heaven, he has reconciled all things to himself. Now, there's a, a reminder here that the cross achieved reconciliation for the cosmos. We're reminded that the creation is out of joint. It fell. It's not just men and women who need to be reconciled. It's the created order. Paul speaks about the whole of creation being groaning with birth pangs together into now. It's looking forward to the return of Jesus. The whole of creation, J.B. Phillips said, is on tiptoe looking to the return for, of Christ. There's this eager expectation. And there is in, in, in nature very often a wistfulness. There is even in the most pretty postcard scene, a wistfulness, you can almost detect a longing. The truth of the, the, the words of scripture, that all is not as it, once, as it one day will be. There is a re restoration ahead for the creation. Sin has thrown the universe out of balance. And the only way for that reconciliation to be brought about is by the cross. See, people, uh, when they're talking about peace, world peace, I believe in world peace. Well, who doesn't believe in world peace? But they, they speak about that in a sentimental kind of way. If only we could get rid of, of all the things that, that, uh, that keep us apart. You know, if only people didn't uh, hold doggedly to religious beliefs. If we could only get rid of all the creeds and live happily together. And it's all sentimentality. And the Bible will not allow us to skirt around the cross. Sin exacts a price. And only by the giving up of the holy, sinless Son of God could the law of God be met. And could this restoration that affects the whole of the cosmos be affected? <clears throat> and one day, all will be reconciled. Some will come gladly to bow the knee to Jesus. 
and others will do so under compulsion. And the cross, which ironically at one time seemed to be the emblem of Jesus' failure and shame, is the sign of Jesus' supremacy. He rules the universe. We can't avoid the question of our relationship with God. We can have all kinds of uh, good and moral thoughts. Uh, We can believe the right things. But unless we've been to the cross, unless we've had our sins blotted out by the shed blood of Jesus, then we will not know this reconciliation. Jesus is supreme in salvation. There is no other Mediator between God and man, but Christ Jesus. He is all sufficient. Salvation is by grace alone. It is the free gift of God, which is destroyed if we try to supplement it by our own actions. So, this this is your Jesus. And he is supreme. And he is sufficient. And he has shown that in creation. And in the rule of the church. And in his exclusive role in salvation. Jesus is supreme. And because he is supreme. He is sufficient. As we close let's. Meditate, shall we? Let's look in on our own situations, on our own hearts. And let's each one of us ask the question, Jesus is supreme, is he sufficient in my life? Is he sufficient in relation to the challenges that I face in my life? I want to invite you just to ask that question in regard to the things that challenge you. It may be in regard to the challenge of loneliness. Is Jesus enough? You may be all alone. Is Jesus enough? If Jesus holds together the universe with all its astonishing complexity, are we able to trust that Jesus is able to order my life? So that in my own circumstances that he has ordered, I will find fullness and not emptiness. What about the problem of self-esteem? Some people find it difficult to to see any dignity in, in, in in themselves. To think that they're of any worth. Is Jesus enough? Because think about it, if you are united by faith to Jesus Christ and he is supreme over all these areas, what a dignity God has given you to have this Jesus, to belong to him, to be placed into him. And then what about our progress as Christians? Jesus enough to move on I get frustrated with my lack of progress is Jesus enough to make me make headway surely he must be this is is Paul's response to people uh, who were looking to other things to make them 
better Christians. He's saying to them, and he's saying to us tonight, you don't need anything else. The prayer that he's expressed at the beginning of the chapter for growth in the knowledge of God's will, a fruitful life, patience and perseverance, all of these things, he says, they're found in Jesus. Not in special experiences. Not in ascetic ignoring of food. Worshipping in a kind of esoteric way divine beings. Jesus is enough. May God bless to us uh, the preaching of his word and may we rest upon Jesus who is not only supreme but he is sufficient for all of our needs. Let's close now with Psalm 72. Um, in Sky, we always used to finish our communion weekend, and this is a communion weekend with this psalm. Uh, it speaks of Jesus' great reign. We're going to sing uh, from the, the Scottish Psalter, the second part in the, the psalm book, Psalm 72, and we'll sing verses 8 and 9, and then verses 17 to 19. His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. They in the wilderness that dwell bow down before him must. And they that are his enemies shall lick the very dust. Verses 17 to 19. His name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Psalm 72, 8 and 9 and then 17 to 19. His large and great dominion shall.